Hello, and welcome everyone to another InventRight live YouTube stream. My name is Andrew Krauss. I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key 21 years ago. We've had students in over 65 countries during that time. So these Q&As, I do a whole hour of Q&A on licensing, and you can type your questions into the chat. I really love doing Q&A. If uh, somebody could type in the word yes, just to verify that you can hear me okay. That would be great. Don't want to be talking without you being able to hear me. Okay, great. Thank you, Julie. Um, I say this at the top of every live uh, YouTube Q&A. So people that well, we don't have that many people in here yet, but I usually people file in about 10, 15 minutes. So I, I think I'm just going to jump right in the Q&A and I can talk generally about um, what licensing is later. For those of you attend these fairly regularly, you probably already know that. Um what was I going to say? All right. So, oh, what I was going to say is I always forget to do this at the beginning and I do it somewhere at the middle. So anything that I share on this live stream is not to be considered legal advice. Please consult your attorney before you move forward on anything or you're uncertain. So don't construe anything that I say to be legal advice. Um, all right. So let's get going here. Cool. Uh All right. Um, Melissa said, what is a typical time frame of communicating with a company before we talk about the terms and the agreement and the contract? And Melissa expanded on it saying, I've sent my prototype images through email, but the company wants the actual prototype mailed to them as well. Is that normal? So Melissa, you're probably doing wrong. What most inventors do wrong when they don't know how to license is you're just doing what they ask you to, which is not what you want to do. So you need to guide them through your process as much as they're guiding you through theirs. Now, quite often, they don't have any formal process. It's an individual in the company. Some companies will have somewhat of a process. Most of them don't. And if you just simply respond or react, I guess is a better way of saying it, the deals will fizzle out. So in this case, they're asking you for a prototype you sent them some prototype images through email. So first off, did you do a sell sheet? Did you do a marketing piece? Um, and you just sent prototype images, but they want a, uh, an actual prototype. So the answer to your question isn't what you expect. If you have not gotten on the phone with them and talked to them about a whole bunch of different stuff, you should never, ever be sending a prototype. It's not that you're worried that they're going to steal your idea or take your prototype and not send it back or something like that. But it's the fact that you're not moving the deal forward. Sending a, Prototypes do not move deals forward. You need to talk to them about what they like about the product. If a company, it's not a company, by the way, it's an individual. So when you get interest from a company, you're getting interest from that individual in the company. And yeah, later the company's licensing it, but they're a person just like you and me. So you need to get them wrapped up in your project and you just sending stuff off, sending stuff off, is not getting them wrapped up in your project. The fact that they take 10 or 15 minutes to talk to you on the phone, that is very positive. They realize you're not a wacky inventor. Most companies have dealt with a few wacky inventors. They're like, not only do I like this product, but this person seems easy enough to work with. So that first call is about establishing rapport. It's about clearing up any misperceptions about the product. You can do all sorts of things on that first call and you should not be sending them your prototype ever, ever, without having at least a first call or other calls. 
So it's not that you don't want to ever send them a prototype, but prototypes don't sell. They don't work right. They break. They make all sorts of assumptions. So, But when you establish a relationship and then later send them a prototype if necessary, but then great. But a lot of times you answer some of their questions. They're like, oh, no, we don't need a prototype. We have enough to go get some quotes overseas or something like that now. We have enough information. So you have to figure out where they are in their head and you have to kind of guide them. And so this is something that new inventors do quite a bit where you're just reacting and say, oh, they need a prototype. Well, I don't have a great prototype or I only have one. It's like, well, don't freaking send it. So if there's one thing you guys take away from this live stream today is never ever send a prototype without at least having that first call. The, the fact that they take, the fact that they ask you for a prototype doesn't verify they're really interested. It takes them two seconds to write an email, send me your prototype, next to no effort. But for them to get on a phone call with you for 10 or 15 minutes takes quite a bit of effort. That is what shows they're truly interested, not the fact that they want you to send more pictures or um, send them a prototype. Yeah, I mean, if they're not interested at all in the product, they're not going to ask for more stuff, of course but it's not as much verification and you are looking to qualify them, okay? And the fact they take the time to talk to you on the phone, sorry, I kicked my desk with uh, my knee there. Try not to do that unless, unless we enjoy, ah, I'm having an earthquake. Anyway, I'm not having an earthquake, there is an earthquake. Uh, anyway, sorry. Sometimes these things can get um, kind of dull, so I'm just being silly. Um, Howard. So Howard says, hi, Andrew, ready to start sending my sell sheet. But then I still have one question. My product cannot be patented. What can I add to the sell sheet as protection? Not much. Right. Question mark. That's a great question, Howard. So that's not true. So first off, I don't know who told you your product can't be patented. Um, so first of all, products aren't patented. I like saying it this way to explain. There's pieces of products that are patented. So let's say, Howard, there was this product that has been out there for a long time. There, I don't know, there's like eight companies making this product, but you put this hinge on the side that has some particular benefit. Well, maybe you get a patent on that piece, okay? But let's say it isn't, full on isn't patented. And especially when people are new to this, this is the advice that I give. Just file a provisional anyway. So if you file a provisional, even though you know it can't get patented, that is okay. And put something on there that you think could possibly be patented, some feature, benefit, or something like that. Feature, sorry. Or, or something that has some sort of functionality and utility. And, and, just, and then you can legally, for $75, once you file that provisional, legally say patent pending. Now, they might be scratching their head going, what is he protecting on this? Because I don't know what your product is. But a lot of times... You know, just keep honest people honest. And it, it, it gives a new inventor that sense of comfort. Now, if you're working on a lot of products like novelty products or things like that, you know, you're not going to go around getting even a provisional on everything you do. We advise our students to do that, and especially up front to get a provisional. But, you know, if you're working on a lot of projects in a particular industry like novelty, where you need to show them a bunch of ideas before they get one that's interested and they don't knock people off, um, then you might not file a provisional every time. That's not my advice. The advice we give our students is to always, always file a provisional. And that is the base advice I'm giving you. But the piece that I'm giving you is you're like, it's not patentable. What can I put on my sell sheet to protect myself? And my answer is put patent pending. But in order to legally put patent pending on the sell sheet, because when you file a provisional, 
You don't have to write provisional patent pending. You can legally put patent pending when you file a provisional patent for $75. So because you're new to it and you're, you're a little uncomfortable and it's going to make you feel better because you wouldn't have to be asking that question if you weren't concerned about it. So spend the $75, put patent pending on it. And you know what? You may be wrong about its patentability. There might be some other feature or functionality that actually could be patented. I don't know. I haven't seen your product. But you can legally do that, even if it's full on. Because what you're doing is you're putting that placeholder in time. It may not be able to get patented later, but you can do that. Anybody can. Um, uh, Deidre said, major research project development wanted major research product development. I don't know what that means. Wanted to license my product. Oh, I read this earlier real quick. And this doesn't make any sense, Deidre, so you need to rewrite it. You wrote major research project development wanted wanted licensed my product approximately three months ago. No money, no deal. Called recently, 3,000. Love sell sheet reproduced. Will represent to 40 companies. Good question mark. I have no idea what you just said. So when you guys type stuff in, Please, Deidre, I'd be happy to answer your question. Be more articulate in what the heck you're talking about. I think I might be guessing that some invention promotion company is claiming to represent you and sell your product for $3,000. Um, and they're going to reach out to 40 companies. I think that might be what you're saying, but I really don't know. So be happy to answer it. Be more succinct and type in. Take your time. Type in your question. Um, let's see. Caleb, hi, Andrew. If a company says they do not take unsolicited ideas, should I still reach out to someone through LinkedIn to pursue that company? Thanks again. So I'll give you an example. Like uh, some of the toy, not toy, uh, uh, tool companies are putting on their website that they don't no longer receive ideas from, it's happened with a few recently, ideas from the outside. But I know personally students of ours that have reached out to the marketing managers at the same companies and they took a look at it. So, you know, the answer is, Caleb, you can't always trust what it says on the website. They may, if you approach through LinkedIn or through some other method, LinkedIn being one of the best, a marketing manager for some of the same companies, they'll take a look at it. And, but, you know, if you approach a couple and they're all like reading you the riot act, like, no, we don't receive ideas, blah, blah, blah. Well, then you know it's true. So if you're really in love with a company, might it make sense to go through a backdoor like LinkedIn um, to reach to a marketing manager. Why not? You know, absolutely. But it's it's kind of uh, a little bit of a red flag if they're publicly saying on their website that they don't receive ideas from independent inventors. Um, but I know a few that have gone right around that, like I just said. So um, Gibbs said, "Are if you're licensing your idea to a company, do you need to buy product liability insurance or does the licensee cover that? So most companies, so product liability insurance, somebody gets hurt with the product and they sue the company, right? Or whoever's selling it. Um, so uh, you can definitely, when you do a licensing deal, 100% of the deals that we, we help our students do you, we insist the inventor is covered under the company's product liability insurance. Here's what's really cool about that is, is it not every 100% of the time that I'm aware of, it's never cost the company one more cent to put the inventor on the company's product liability insurance. But here's what's funny. Some of them don't even know that because it's the marketing manager, whoever you're negotiating with, they don't know that. 
So you have to actually tell them that. And then they'll talk to the right people and they'll be like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess we can do that. So you always want to be covered under their product liability insurance. They almost always have a million or two million product liability insurance. Um, the other thing I've never, ever, and I've had students license stuff like ladders or knives or all sorts of stuff that people get hurt, hurt from. I've never personally heard of one of our students saying, oh, the company got sued with for my product. And I've definitely never heard of, oh, somebody tried to sue me because I licensed this product to this company. I've never heard either of those. Now, do people sue companies because they got hurt with products? Sure they do. But when that happens, um, they're looking for deep pockets. They're looking for the attorneys because that's what attorneys do. They're looking for to sue the company, not you. So even if they know you exist, they're probably not going to sue you. But then if they did, you're covered under the company's product liability insurance, but you're kind of hidden. I mean, yeah, they could look up, maybe let's say you file a patent, company gives you the money and you file a patent under your name. They could look that up, but they probably wouldn't even bother to even touch you is my guess. I can't guarantee that, of course, but if they did, you've also done your licensing agreement as an LLC, not an individual. We always insist our students do licensing agreements as an LLC or a corporation. And just, you know, it's not something you need to do now. Like when you get in the midst of a deal, they don't care. Like you were just using your name before. And now you're like, I want to do it on this new LLC. They're not gonna be like, oh, how come you didn't tell us before? We're not going to do this. Like never. They don't care. They're like, whatever, whatever name you want or company you want to do it under, we're okay with it. We just want to license this product. So here's all the ways you're covered. You're covered because uh, you do a deal under an LLC they don't want to sue you. You're not Mr. Moneybags most of the time. So they don't want to sue you even if they know you exist. But most of the time, they don't even know you exist because your name's not on the package as the inventor 99% of the time. Um, you insist in the licensing contract they're covered under your product liability insurance. And what else? Um, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> so that's why one of our students has literally never, ever had a problem with this. Could it happen? Yes. And that's why you have all those things in place. So it's not something that I would advise people to worry about. I mean, if you want zero risk of any kind in any way, like, I don't know, definitely don't run a business, have a day job and don't ever leave your house. I don't know. Um, but give, it was a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, perfectly good question to ask. Um, Julie says, I was prompted to install the Zoom Info company app. Uh, Zoom Info is a place where you can try to get names of uh, people in companies, phone numbers, emails, et cetera. Um, it appears to give me contact information. If I give up my own contact info, do you have any thoughts on Zoom Info Community App? Now, there's a lot of other techniques that we teach our students. Um, the, the easiest, simplest, we, we did a whole webinar for our students on a, I don't know, it was like eight or nine different techniques. But the one that I'll share with you is... Um, just LinkedIn, you know, I mean, most of them are right there. You know, do a search on that company on LinkedIn, find a marketing manager, reach out to them. Now there's a particular approach that, that we take and we teach and there's a lot of little details that goes into how you approach companies and on LinkedIn and all that. But um, I don't think Zoom info is at the top of my list. It was one, one of the ones on the list, but um, yeah, I don't think you need to give up your information in order to uh, use the Zoom info app to get something you can't get something somewhere else. There's a lot of other ways to get that, Julie. So that's your decision. 
Um, and if you did give up your information, I don't know, I would use your junk email address and something else. Um, anyway, uh, raising standards. So Fez, Fez here, so his name's Fez. Hey, Fez, I remember you. Um, or at least I remember your name from some other Monday Q&As. Um, what are your thoughts on aftermarket products for cars that provide life-saving measures and are also adopted by the regulatory agencies, um, for example, airbags? I, Fez, you asked me about aftermarket for uh, cars. I thought that was you. Maybe it was somebody else, but I think it was you. And I said aftermarket is where it's at for automotive products. Good luck licensing something to Ford, GM, Volkswagen. But man, aftermarket, there's a ton of companies. One of our students licensed this really cool Jeep door that kind of goes up like a Lamborghini door. Uh, sometimes people in Jeeps, they just don't, they don't have doors or they have soft doors. And this one was just like a rail and it kind of goes up. So it offers uh, some protection, but gives you some flexibility and sticking your foot out. I, I don't know. I've never done... I don't have a Jeep, so I don't know why you need to stick your foot out. But I saw a guy driving down the freeway sticking his foot out, his Jeep door, because it didn't have a door. But my point is, and stop rambling about Jeep doors, <laughs> is that um, automotive aftermarket, beautiful market, trying to license a major automotive manufacturer, just shoot yourself in the head right now. Now, we had a student that did it. I think I talked about that last time or the time before. And I don't think he could have done it without us. What really sucked is we couldn't do the success story because they are so secretive. They, he, he, he wasn't even supposed to be talking to us. So, and he didn't let us know that until afterwards. And I'm like, ah, oh, like that would have been great. But I, I feel like in some ways it was good that we weren't able to, because I would be worried. We would get a bunch of people approaching us thinking falsely so, because this guy had like eight pounds that you can license to big automotive manufacturers. But automotive aftermarket, all these accessories, rims, this Jeep door, mufflers, just an endless, endless list of products you can license um, to automotive aftermarket companies. And there's so many of them, too. There's not like just a few. So um, with a lot of those and, you know, we had um, we had a, a meeting where we bring on companies and this uh, this this one company was talking about how it is a lot easier you, when you're in the automotive aftermarket, you're skating around a lot of those laws. But if it goes on a Volkswagen at the factory, it's very different. So a lot of that stuff that sold at the auto parts stores, you're skating around those laws. That was your question, uh, Fez. And so I think um, you wrote, uh, what are your thoughts on aftermarket products for cars that provide life-saving measures and are also adopted by the regulatory agencies? So my answer is, it's not going to be as stringent, but it that depends on what your product is. Um, you know, any regulatory agency is a pain in the butt. Um, that's why we have students doing medical devices and their technical medical devices that need different approvals. And those can be harder to license as opposed to something that's sold in a senior catalog. That's like a quasi medical device. So um, you're, you're in the right place with aftermarket fez, but um you know, I, so I don't know without knowing the product and you need to look into it, what kind of regulations it would need to pass. But it's definitely more lenient with aftermarket than it is major automotive manufacturer. Um, uh, I can't read the name, but this next question, uh, I can't read the screen name. Unique 
Lie Jones, unique Lie Jones is the screen name. So type your first name, guys, in if you can, but it doesn't matter either way. Um, for licensing a game, is Hasbro the cream of the crop? Before you submit an idea, their contract says no more than 1.5%. Does their reach make up for the small percentage? So, um, so first off, with some companies, there's a door that you go in as the rookie inventor that has the portal. And then there's a door. So I, I'm not quoting, I don't know specifically, but let's say you're a professional inventor. You make a relationship with Hasbro because you sent them a couple ideas and now you're not going through that portal. So once you've made a relationship with a company, you shouldn't be going through any portal of any kind. And portals are black holes. So, you know, I don't know all the royalties, nor how would I know all the royalties that Hasbro has ever paid, but there's a very good chance it might be quite a bit more if you are an inventor they have a relationship with. So, um, you know, but you do have to look at that. As I always talk about, it's not just the royalty rate, it's the royalty rate, the price of the product and the volume that can be sold. So if they give you minimum guarantees of a half a million units and it's a $59 product, you know, you might be okay with that. So let's see. So let's say, let's say the wholesale price, let's say a wholesale price is 30. And the I've got my calculator up here, and the retail is fifty nine ninety five. So times, God, that's really low. Point one, point zero, one five. That's very low. Um, Forty five cents times half a million units, and let's see, let's see, that would be two hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year. So that's a perfect example because one point five percent royalty is ridiculous. I mean, 5% is the most common. Sometimes our students will get six, seven, eight. Um, DRTV, for the most part, is the only place where I see like a 2 or 3% royalty rate consistently. But they're like, we'll give you massive minimum guarantees or nothing. We'll hand it back to you if we don't hit these massive numbers because that's all they want to do. That is kind of changing because a lot of those DRTV companies, I think, are doing Facebook ads and stuff now. So they're okay with smaller products. But you, you don't just look at the percentage. So like in that case, if they sold half a million units and it was a $59 retail and you're getting the whole, you're getting the royalty rate on the wholesale price, let's say 30. So you'd be earning $225,000, almost a quarter million dollars a year. So it's all relative. So you're right about that. But it, it's pretty ridiculously low. And, and I would be shocked if they weren't, I don't know, I have no idea if they weren't paying more to uh, professional inventors or just inventors that they have relationships with that consistently send. Um, but on that same one, you could be another company that they give you a five or 6% royalty, but what are they going to sell? Maybe they're going to, what if you interview them and they're, and they're committing to like 10,000 units a year? Well, you run the numbers, the royalty rate, the price, of the product and the volume being sold. So, so to answer your question, it's a great question, unique, lie Jones. Um, it's all relative. You're right. Um, but if you have a toy, you reach out to Hasbro and you reach out to everybody. So I, I would prefer if you went through the back door to get to Hasbro, but God, they, you know, there, there's, there's a reason why they're putting up that, um, that portal, but some portals are black holes. Some portals are, they're really looking at it. Some portals, especially if it's a smaller company, one week, they're really looking at it, and then they don't look at it for three weeks. 
um, or a month, or they haven't looked at it for three months. You never know. That's why it definitely doesn't hurt to try to go around it because um, portals can be serious black holes. And so when you're new to it, if you're like, oh, I'm only going to, this would be a rookie move. And most of you probably doing this. A lot of you are probably doing this. Um, if you just submit to companies that have portals, you're like, oh, but I like that because they say they're open. Yeah, but you're going, you don't know if their openness is the black hole so they can promptly ignore you or if they're really looking at it or if they're offering you not as good of a deal through that portal because that's for the rookies because toy inventors, they, uh, they submit a lot of ideas and they don't go through that portal. There's actually some companies as big as Hasbro have separate portals for the professionals that they have relationships with. Um, so don't think portal good. And if they don't have something on their website about receiving ideas, that that is a bad thing and they're not open, it's better in some ways. I, I'm not saying a black and white thing. I'm just kind of making a point. Okay. Does that mean I would never submit to a portal? No, I submit to a portal and then submit to a bunch of people on LinkedIn and call them as well. Do all of it. But but don't don't just submit to portals and expect things to happen. That's amateur hour. Don't do that. I mean, if you want to get started, just get familiar and play with it. But don't expect something to happen from that. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Kevin, hi Andrew. If I'm using generic generic product picks from my sell sheet, can I just use borrow Google picks? Or should they be purchased on stock photos since it's not publicly shared PDF? Does it matter? So, yeah, I, I don't know what the fair use laws are there. Um, so one thing that you that you can do that people are surprised by. So there's a difference between publicly showing things and privately showing things. Like I had this one student once and he had something to do with football and I didn't know he had a website. And he called me up one day and he said, Andrew, the NFL's threatening um, to sue me if I don't take this down. I'm like, take down what? He's like, well, I got a website and I got NFL logos on my stuff. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? You put NFL logos on your product publicly on a public website? I'm like, what are you thinking? And I said, just tell them, take it down like this millisecond and just tell them you took it down. And I bet they'll just go away. And that's what happened. But that was just stupid. Never, never use people's logos or products publicly because you're misrepresenting their product. That is not cool. But to privately, like, for instance, I'm doing an offshoot for what you're saying, Kevin, and then I'll answer your question. But to privately show your product for license and to do a sell sheet and to have a notice at the bottom that says all trademarks and logos are are. Uh, property of their rightful owners. And this sell sheet is just for illustrative purposes. So in that instance, you can actually use a logo. Like maybe you're like, you want to show them that you could put Mickey Mouse on it. You could put Mickey Mouse on it. You're just privately showing it to them for a license fee email to one person. You're not messing with their brand publicly, you know, and you put that notice on there. So you're really clearly not misrepresenting um, and they're just seeing the possibilities. And that falls under what's called fair use. So what Kevin's saying here is with his sell sheet, can I take pics from Google and then use that privately? Um, or do I have to buy stock images? 
And I think what a graphic designer would say is you have to buy stock images. Um, and there's places you can get free stock images and stuff. Um, you have to figure out if stock images are a good idea or not. Um, I Back in the day, we used to, our students, we used to guide our students to do their own sell sheets. And I'll say that was freaking stupid. Um, now, we've been around 21 years. So graphic designers were insanely expensive a long time ago. So back in the day, we would guide people to hack together in like Microsoft Word and convert it to a PDF, their own sell sheets. Graphic designers work so affordably now. In my opinion, nobody should be doing that. Unless you're a really good graphic designer already, and even if you're not a full-time, that's fine. But um, you should always have a graphic designer doing it. So Kevin, to answer your question, if you're trying to get your sell sheet done, I would recommend having a graphic designer do it. And they have access to stock photos and different stuff that they've paid for. But I guarantee you there's tons of inventors that have sent sell sheets where they just pulled some image off the internet and then threw it in their sell sheet. And and have I ever heard about anybody getting in trouble with that when you're privately, again, showing it to one person? But I think the argument can be made. You're making it a marketing piece, especially if it's a stock photo. Somebody took the time to take those pictures and of a llama or of uh, people in a corporate boardroom or something, whatever, or somebody in a kitchen and you're using that image to try to sell your product, even though it's only to one person, that they own that image. So I don't really know if that would fall under or under uh, uh, fair use. Um, you know, I mean, it's kind of weird that I'm saying, well, logos and trademarks would, but, you know, for somebody else's picture, you know, I'm not I'm not 100% sure. So you should be careful with that. But don't do your own sell sheet if you're not a graphic designer. You can pay somebody a few bucks to do that. Um, we do it for our students and we do a great job. But we, we, we put the screws to our students with like, let's think about what's the benefit statement? What's the bullet points? What are the pictures? I, you won't put the screws to people. But we really, when somebody comes on as a student with us, we're not like, okay, here you go. Here's your sell sheet. Like, oh, you just give us a product. We give it to you back. Like, what did you learn that way? You learned nothing. So we work on the marketing. And with, you know, the coach will point the student in the direction. And the student will come back on the next meeting. And the coach is like, oh, it's looking pretty good. Well, let's change this, change that. So they're not submitting to our design studio marketing that doesn't work. But the coach helps them with the base marketing. And then our design studio makes it pretty. So if we just did it all, all for them and didn't put them through it a little bit and didn't make them think a little bit, they will never learn how to do that the next time. And then they got some graphic designer because graphic designers are not marketers, a lot of them. So they'll just make you a pretty piece of junk, junk in, junk out. So if you don't give them the right marketing, the right words, the right thoughts for the pictures, they'll make it pretty, but it will be a pretty piece of garbage. And that's what I see from some inventors. So some inventors I see... The marketing's off and because they try to do the graphic design themselves. The graphic design's off. That's just a crappy sell sheet all around. Now, the inventor does the marketing themselves and they just send it to a graphic designer and Fiverr or somewhere else. And then the graphic designer does it. And it's a pretty piece of junk because it wasn't making sense. And the graphic designer is just doing whatever the inventor told him to do. Right. And so you really need somebody helping you to make sure the marketing is good. And quite often, that's not the graphic designer. Okay. Um, I'm going to turn on the AC in here. It's getting hot. There we go. Um, okay. Yeah, because I got 28 minutes to go here. So, uh, 
So let's go to the next one. Deidre, I have spoken to the company for approximately four months, PPA in place. Was that Deidre? But Deidre, I still don't understand your question from earlier. So yeah, I don't know. Let's see if you typed it down further. I still don't get your question. You need to retype your question. Oh, okay. Yeah, you did down there. Deidre said, yes, Andrew, you're right. The company wanted 25000 Now we'll just rep for 3000 Is this good PPA and sell sheet? Um, that's what you have. So I, I've... This is what I can say. I've never met an inventor in 21 years that had a company that said they would sell their idea for them, license it for them. Not the company you license to, but an invention promotion company. I've never met an inventor in 21 years that said, yes, I signed up with an invention promotion company. Usually it's 10 or 12 grand and they license my product for me. But I talked to somebody about every day or every other day at the most has been taken for 10 or 12 grand and they got nothing to show for it. So if what you're saying is, does it, is it a good idea for me to give $25,000 to some company that say they're going to try to sell my idea? Um, you're not mentioning a company name. So I could say, no, I'd say take it in your own hands. Go direct. You will know what's happening if you're directly interacting with these companies and you're taking action. And the InventRight channel is all about that. We remove all these uh, misperceptions people have like, oh, I can't afford a $20,000 patent. I just interviewed one of our former students that licensed a, a drum key for drummers. He's a drummer. And it wasn't until he heard from us that you could file a provisional that made him go, oh, I can do this. Because he thought you needed 20K to file a patent. Then he realized you could have 75 to file a provisional. There's a lot of other roadblocks that we remove from people and then they're like, oh, holy crap, there's nothing in my way. And now that's scary, right? But it's exciting, too. So, um, no, I don't recommend throwing out a bunch of money to some company that says they're all going to do it for you. It's the opposite of the InventRight approach. Um, we empower people to reach out directly to companies. You know what's happening because you're freaking doing it, you know? Um, so, yeah. So, hope, so, Deidre, thank you for expanding on that. Um, let's see. See where I lost my place there. Uh, Raphael, what's the first step that I should take if I have an if I have an idea for an invention? I want to take all the proper steps, and it's an invention for the sports industry. So first off, you need to study the marketplace. You need to look at all the products in the space of your micro category. So what is a micro category? So you said it's a sports product, Raphael. So let's say it's a product for carrying your, your baseball supplies, your bats, your helmets, your balls, all that stuff to the baseball field. Okay. So it's an accessory to carry. It's a special bag for, for baseball stuff. Okay. So you, that's a micro category. Are you going to study all the baseball products? No, you're not going to do that. But you need to know every, I'm saying freaking a lot today, but that's better than swearing. You need to know every freaking company out there that is selling any sort of product that helps you transport your baseball supplies from your house to the field. Okay. So not just bags. Let's say it's a bag. Maybe it's a box. Maybe it's something that rolls. Maybe it's all the different solutions. And when you're doing that, you're not trying to prove everything sucks. 
which is the mindset a lot of inventors are on. Well, that sucks. Mine's better than that. Mine's better than that. Mine's better than that. That's BS. What you're doing is going, okay, there's five over there that do that. And there's four over there that do that. And I'm noticing the price from here to here. I see the same kind of benefits over and over. You're observing the micro category of your invention. You're observing the marketplace. And then you say, where does mine fit in? And you might be like, oh, mine totally fits right here. Or you know what? There's like 10 products kind of like it, but mine has this little extra something. So instead of being discouraged or 10 products kind of like it, you're like, but mine has a point of difference. So if we were seeing two on the same store shelf, you think that a percentage of people would want to buy yours over theirs. Now, maybe there's nothing like it. There's something in the center. Like it's kind of, it's not a bag, but it's not a roll away, but it's this. And for whatever reasons, based on knowing everything. But most inventors do not know everything in their micro category. And they just make assumptions based on what, well, I haven't seen it at a store. And so I'll give you another example. And it was specifically, I, give, I think I've given this example before in the sporting goods industry. So um, I was on with this student. And I think you, some of you heard me tell a story before, but because um, some of you are becoming real regulars here, which is cool. Because you guys are even students and you're just like our invent rights students and you're like showing up all the time. I think that's so cool. So um, I'm on the West Coast and this guy was on the East Coast. And I was trying to emphasize that people will tend to go just to the few retailers they know locally. Big mistake. Okay. So like, yeah, I don't know. If I would rattle off top of my head, sporting good companies, uh, retailers near me. I, I used to be in California 12 years ago. I've been in Nevada for the last 12 years. Pretty much same retailers. So I would think Dick's Sporting Goods, Big Five, um, REI for camping stuff. Um, I mean, with my, that's my limited, like that's pretty much what I would think of sporting good companies. That would be a giant mistake if I only looked there for competing products. So, and I told that to this guy on the East Coast. Now I rattled off a few and he rattled off a few, which was different than mine. And then I, now you don't know it was going to be this simple, but I typed in list of major US sporting good retailers into Google. And I find a Wikipedia article that literally listed, and it won't always be this easy. Most of the time it's not, but you should always try this first. It listed every sporting good retailer, not the people you license to, not the manufacturers, but the retailer. Because you license to the companies that sell in the retailers. So you want to look at all those online retailer websites, right? There was a ton of companies. Like I only rattle off like three or four. He rattled off three or four. There was like 25. Okay, so if you don't look at all the retailers, you're not looking at all the companies selling those types of products at those retailers. So um, and that's one thing that I would say is we've had students in 65 countries. When I see our international students, they don't make that mistake because they don't know the retailers. So they look for the retailers. So do not limit yourself to your local geography. You need to know all the retailers in the entire United States, and maybe Canada. And then you need to hit those retailers and you're looking you're not looking to go, well, mine's better than that. Mine's better than that. And that is the, like, I don't know, like, it, it's a syndrome. It's a disease. Don't do that. You know, acknowledge what these other products that are in the micro category. Now, you can't study all of baseball products in four hours. But could you study all the products that help you transport your gear in about four hours just for baseball? Yeah, you probably could. That's small enough to do it. And that's what you're competing with. So that's what you have to do. So who, who asked that question? Um, that was a good question, Raphael. 
Um, and hopefully everybody else benefited from that. Um, so you want to do all the proper steps. So that is your first step, always and forever. And if you want to lessen the pain that you guys feel, don't think about an idea and keep dreaming on it. The second you have an idea, do that four hours, two, four, six hours of research. Look at everything out there. And because it's easier to make an adjustment, you're like, you had the idea, you look at all the other products, and it's not solidified in your brain. This is how it has to be. This is how it has to be. You're going to adjust quicker. Now, it's okay. Maybe you had the idea for six months or a year or two years or five years, and you never did that research, which most inventors don't. And now you do that research, be willing to change. It's hard because you've been dreaming about it. And the longer an inventor has an idea in their head, the more fixed it becomes, the more rigid you become, and which is not a quality of the average inventor. It's very open and thinking about all different things. But once you've been thinking about something for years or even sometimes months, it becomes fixed in your head. That is dangerous. So, But if you've already been fixed in your head and just keep an open mind, be willing to make some changes if necessary, and then go for it. And if it's not making sense, make some adjustments. If it's still not making sense, move on to the next idea. But that's also the reason why, um, Raphael, you want to do that searching right away. So if the whole thing doesn't make sense, you haven't fallen in love with it yet. But just because you find similar things, that could be validating the product makes sense. Sometimes people go, well, there needs to be nothing like it. That's a crap attitude. Don't do that. Go, you know, oh, there's a couple products kind of like it, but I got this slight tweak. Or, you know, it's really kind of in between this. It is fairly different. Okay, but be honest with yourself that it is fairly different. What has a point of difference? The products don't need to have this dramatic, dramatic difference over everything else. Sometimes those slight variations, companies are more likely to license those. So don't fall into that trap either. So I think I'm doing a good job tonight. Let me know if you guys feel like I'm doing a good job and you feel like this is really helpful and you're not subscribed, click on subscribe to our channel. We, we hit 50,000 subscribers recently. I'd like to get 80,000 subscribers within like eight months. So um, now if you're already subscribed, don't click on it again because they'll unsubscribe you and give us a bunch of thumbs up on different videos you're watching. So that's the way you can pay me back for taking a full hour to answer your questions. Um, you don't have to do that, but it'd be nice. I appreciate it. Um, okay. Uh, Shannon, if you do progress to filing a non-provisional patent, do you have a chance to improve the quality of the PPA, not improvements to the product with the help of a lawyer? Absolutely. So the attorneys will always improve um, on what they file. And the only time the PPA is ever going to get looked at is if that one year is a question. So without a doubt, the attorney is going to improve it. But whatever you filed from the date you filed it, as long as you have it in there, and maybe you didn't do a good job, like maybe you didn't write it right, you didn't, you didn't articulate something, but there's a picture of it. So it's like, well, but there's a picture there. So there's a lot of things that you can do if you put the right stuff in there that you can then later cite. I have never in... 21 years of doing InventRight ever, ever had one of our students ever have to cite something that was in their provisional after they filed the utility because that one year was an issue, ever. So there, that's another reason not to worry about doing a provisional completely perfectly. Um, but whatever you put in there will give you that date, that prior year date. And it doesn't have to be written perfectly. And yes, the attorney will write the full non-provisional 
and do a better job of it? That's a question I get often. Thank you, Shannon. I love it when people ask questions. I can answer their question, but I know a bunch of other people are like, holy crap, Andrew, I didn't know that. Um, um, I'm having fun saying crap and friggin'. And I think they're both not bad. Um, but I hope there's no kids listening. Because um, friggin's okay, but but the crap probably not good. Um, let's see. One time I had a, um, a student get upset because we were, we're really clean, but I had a student get upset and we were doing a webinar and they invited their kids to the webinar. It wasn't one about toys or anything. And, and I think one person said a, a swear word or something like that. And they got really upset. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's like kids listening to this. And, and I apologize, but um, anyway, it was a funny little story. Uh, Mar said, uh, but at some point you have to send a prototype, right? Especially if they're asking after having multiple meetings. Um, maybe, maybe not. A lot of times you can give them enough information where they, what is their goal, Mar? You know, are they just trying to get some quotes to see if it's manufacturable, reasonable price? Maybe you get some, some drawings. Maybe you explain a piece of it. Um, not necessarily. It really depends. Um, a lot of our students don't have prototypes and they're able to license products. People are surprised by that. Um, uh, Margie said, hi, Andrew, do you have any advice on how to make a sell sheet video? Should it be professionally done or can I do it with my phone? A, a large percentage of our students will do a sell sheet video <clears throat> with their phone. And so I'll say a couple things about, um, so sometimes what's really great is, especially if you have something to show, maybe it's a prototype that works, maybe it doesn't work, but you kind of show it working or it creates the perception it's working. So when you could just hold up or somebody else can hold up an iPhone and if the newer ones are amazing, I mean, really good quality or an Android phone, whatever, and they can just shoot you and you could just give your presentation all the way through. That works great sometimes. I've seen great ones that way. But don't think of a sell sheet video as it doesn't, it's not always a video. Like it might be a short video clip. It might be a still image with a narration. It might be nothing but still images with the narration. Maybe you pay a few bucks to a um, narrator that narrates over top of it. Um, maybe there's captions that pop up. A video isn't necessarily a talking head or a demonstration of the product. Like you could have a virtual prototype and you have a still image up there and then you're talking about it. And they're like, oh, that's what it looks like. And then let's say it's a dog toy. And then you got this really crude one that's just duct taped all to hell. And you like throw it and the dog's coming back with it. And they can see that there's duct tape on it or they can't. And maybe it falls apart nine times out of 10. But the one time it doesn't, that's the video you keep. And so they're seeing what the product's going to be because they see the nice virtual prototype. They see the dogs having fun or it's creating some sort of effect or something that you're faking or it's actually working. And so a video is not always what you think it is. It doesn't have to be moving images. It could be still images with narration. It could be um, both. It could be different. But um, if you have a prototype and you do shoot your own video, you're not, hi, my name's Bob. And I've been thinking about this invention for a long time. And my family thinks it's a great idea. And, you know, no, don't do that. And I can't tell you how many inventors I've seen that. Don't do that. It's it, a sell sheet is an advertising piece for their customer. And a video sell sheet is also for their customer, not for them. So if you're showing, you know, cutting on a kitchen 
chopping board, a, a kitchen chopping board, a chopping board for the kitchen. And, you know, it's, it's showing how it's kind of easy to just push the excess off into the sink or whatever it is. These are all things you can do. Maybe you're doing it all in one shot, which is beautiful, but maybe you're shooting a couple pieces and, you know, you're in iMovie if you're on a Mac and it's not really not that hard to piece that together. Or you can throw a rock and hit a, a high school or a college student that can do that for you if that's not your thing. Um, and, and if you're on a PC, there's a whole bunch of free software you can use to do really basic video editing. So um, it doesn't need to be really well produced, but it needs to get the drive home the benefit. You know, you have to drive home the benefit. All right. And um, and so some of our students, they'll just do a video. Some will do just a sell sheet. Some will do both. Some will do a sell sheet with a link to the video. And the sell sheet's beautiful because we created it for them. But the video maybe is a little bit more crude, but it's great. It's a great supplement to the sell sheet. And you click on it. And whenever we guide our students, we always say it's unlisted YouTube video. So you never want to publicly disclose your, your product um, when you're licensing. There's no need to do it. Don't do it. Um, if you've already been venturing and selling your product, that's fine. If you've been selling it, it's been out there for years or whatever. Fine. No big deal. But... Um, you could, but when on, this is a tip that I'll give you is you don't make your YouTube videos private. There is public, there's unlisted and there's private public. You don't want because people can search for it and find it. Don't want that. Definitely not. Now, private doesn't work because you need to their YouTube username. You need to give them access. That's a freaking mess. Don't do that. There I use freaking again. Um, don't do that. Unlisted means that literally it's like a password. Nobody except for this really long link with a bunch of random numbers and letters. Only if you give somebody the link can they watch it. Nobody can search it and find it. They can't Google it or search for it on YouTube and find it. So, and people will not take time to enter a password. So it's essentially like a password. You get, you make it, you upload it as unlisted. You share that link and and then if they click on it, they can see it. And you're like, well, but maybe they can share it around the company. Great. That's exactly what you want. You want them to share it around the company. And you can see how many views that you get. Now, most of our students just do one video and they put it up there. And um, and I think that's fine. And you can kind of like, you can look at the, the analytics and you can see, you can just click on statistics, I think, or whatever it is now. And you can see like, oh gosh, this company from Maryland like hit it three times. And this other company from California and you kind of know where people are from. So you kind of guess as to who's looking at it. But I, I have some students that go as far as uploading the same video separately each time for each company. So they'll know like this link is for that company, that link, same video, upload it multiple times. So that's a really cool tip. And you'll know for certain that was that company. And you know, it's also kind of nice like them not thinking that you're showing it to a bunch of other people. It's a little extra work, but that is something that you can do um, if you want to kind of really know, did they look at it, right? Um, I'm going to take a drink of water here. Um, Jen said, how long does it typically take a company to do a feasibility study? I have a company that says they're super interested but need to, to price items and determine retail costs. So first of all, I don't know what a feasible a feasibility study is. What that would mean for every company would be different. I mean, I know what a feasibility study is, but I don't 
typically see a lot of people saying, we need to do a feasibility study. Uh, see it sometimes. But you said the company's super interested, but they need to price items and determine retail costs. So what I would do is I'd ask them more specifically, what do you mean by price items? Maybe you can get them that information, you know, and you can give them examples. And yeah, they know their market and let them do that. But if you can get that information and give your opinion on stuff, they'll just take more time to think it through than you will take more time to think it through and go, well, there's this. And if people are paying $29.95 for that, I think they would pay this. And so if you can get in their head and figure out what it is they're trying to figure out, maybe you, by observation and looking at similar products, you can give them some of that information. Okay. Um, Now, Gabriel, I addressed this earlier. I personally, out of my own personal experience, being the co-founder of InventRight, I've never met an inventor that had an invention promotion company license a product for them. So your question was, do you recommend working with any of the marketing consulting firms that already established relationships with companies in the field of my invention and they'll take a consulting fee in return? What I can say is go to inventorfraud.com and there are jumping points, off points there with the Federal Trade Commission and the Patent Office, and they will explain to you how companies take money from inventors and provide little to nothing in return. Not th- I'm not talking about the companies you license to, but companies saying they'll do all the work for you, that they will try to license it for you. So I never, ever, ever mention companies by name. I would never do that, um, nor can I, nor should I. Um, so you need to do your own due diligence there. But um, I've never met an inventor that's done that. And our inventors are licensing stuff all the time. Now, what we're saying is you need to do the work. And we coach and mentor and guide you to do the work. What these most invention promotions mean is you don't have to do anything. We have the contacts. We have a lot. And, and I won't even tell you what I really feel about that. Because when you're not in the business that we're in, you're not seeing people constantly complaining. But if you Google it, you will see the horror stories of people that said, oh, this company said they would do, I'll do it for me. And now, I mean, I talked to a little old lady in a trailer park that was literally taken for her last $20,000. You have no idea. So, um, but we don't offer what a lot of inventors want because they're like, oh, I got this great million dollar idea. I just need somebody to take it and run with it. And maybe they weren't watching our show. Maybe they didn't realize that they didn't need a $20,000 patent and a $10,000 prototype, or they realized, didn't realize that, you can actually get in front of these marketing managers, these companies, and they will listen to you. Don't have a ridiculous marketing piece. Make sure it's a right match for them. But it's not the hardest thing in the world. It's not that hard, really, once you get used to it. But you have to get over that hump of getting used to it, you know. Um, so, uh, no, Gabriel, I personally have not uh, ever talked to an inventor that's ever licensed a product that way, personally. Um, so what does that tell you? And if you look at some of these companies and you look at reviews or scam or you type them in, you'll see endless, endless, endless complaints. Um, so what does that tell you? Use your brain, you know. And, um, and so my answer is if you don't want to make an effort to try to license your product, go back to your day job, you know, because starting a business is a thousand times more work than licensing. Nothing wrong with doing that. But licensing is still work. You still have to file a PPA for 75 bucks. You still have to study the marketplace that I talked about earlier, figure out how your product fits in. You still have to do a sell sheet or sell sheet video that does all the selling for you. So you need to be a, you don't need to be a sales schmuck like pitching, pitching, pitching. 
that's going to do the pitching for you. You're just asking permission to send that sell sheet or video. And then you need to reach out to 20 or 30 companies, not two or three. Um, and then you don't say stupid stuff like, I want to sell you my idea. You never say that. You're, you're, you're licensing it. You're renting or leasing it. They'll never pay you what it's worth up front. But over time, if it sells for five, eight years or three years or however long it sells, you'll get way more money that way. So, um, But you need to feel like you can do that. And you can do that. And our students are doing it all the time. Just look at our testimonials page. And we got a new page up there, Inventors Helping Inventors. And it's like all these all these links to places where you can buy these people's um, products that have licensed products. And I think there's a few that have ventured, but most of them are students that have licensed products. So check that out as well. Um, but if you're looking for somebody to do it all for you, and you, you, the idea is five or 10% of it at most. That's all the idea is worth. If nobody puts it in front of companies, it, it's just an idea. It's like the difference between an artist that paints in their garage and they just leave their paintings in their garage. Well, nobody's going to be able to enjoy their artwork in their halls, hallways of their house or in museums. Same thing with an inventor. If you don't reach out, get it licensed to a big company that can get it in the stores so people can buy it and enjoy it, it'll never happen. So you have to get it in front of, of companies. And I understand that when people are new, they're like, well, you know, I have a good idea and it makes sense. There's companies that can then sell my idea to some other company, but it's just an endless list of people trying to separate you from your money. And, and if you read about how they work, why does the Federal Trade Commission and the Patent Office endlessly warn inventors about this? Because it's a giant problem. And now we're saying something completely different. Look, you got to do the work. We'll guide you to do the work. We'll guide you through every piece of it. Like, and they say, well, they say this, like, we'll tell you what to say back. We'll show you how to get in. We'll guide you through it. But we're making you do the work. But when you know that we have your back, it's great. You know, anything that they can say, we'll have an answer for it because we've been doing this forever and a day. But if you look for somebody to do it all for you, you're in it for a world of hurt. And just read about other people that have experienced it. Um, uh Let's see. Um, so got one minute left. Have you ever heard of, Andrew, have you ever heard of a big company like 3M making a deal for an improvement on a tool of theirs? So there are what I call, I like to define them as mega corporations. So what's a mega corporation? A 3M, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, Apple, um, Google. You know, I could count them probably on two hands, like really, really big. Our students license to really big companies all day long that are like in Walmart or Target or Rite Aid or Lowe's or Home Depot, okay? But when you talk about a company as big as 3M, we've never had a student license to one of those. Now, you might put like a, a, a Conair in that category, but we've had companies licensed to Conair and they're huge, you know, but 3M bigger, right? And so, um, you know, when you look at their policies, it's not very inventor friendly. You know, all as I've ever gotten from 3M for our students is an attorney grilling them on the intellectual property. You don't even get to talk to the marketing person. And then they're like filing away all that information for their own. And then you don't even get to talk to a marketing person. And you're like, I would feel like kind of like really weird about that. So 
Um, but, you know, like I said, it's next to impossible to license to a major automotive company. One of our students did it. But would I recommend trying it? Hell no. Would I recommend to the person that said earlier, I think it was Fez, I forget, automotive aftermarket? Yeah. So don't focus on the mega corporations, the Googles, the Apples, Procter & Gamble's, the 3Ms of the world. There are really, really big companies that have massive distribution that aren't that big. They're too... They're like this octopus with too many tentacles and they're just so obsessed with intellectual property and patents and stuff that you, you just, I, I would be shocked. I mean, if you had a lock, you'd mo- almost need to license to a smaller company that they would buy out. So um, not excited about 3M. And if you read through, I haven't read through their policy on submissions. It's, it's, it, it's, you, I am. An experienced inventor would go, well, I'm not submitting to them, you know, because this when a, when a company and this is how archaic it is, when a company says you need to have an issued patent for us to consider a license to you, that's ridiculous. So you're going to spend 20, 10, 20 K on a patent, sit around waiting two or three years for it to issue and then show it to them. The product might not even be relevant anymore. That's why it's so beneficial to file a provisional patent and go fishing, and if there's no interest, you're only at $75. How many times can you spend ten dollars or $20,000 on a patent and then have it not work out? For most of you, not too many times. And even if you can't afford it, don't be stupid. Don't do that. You know, I get plenty of people that have signed up with us that have filed a patent. I go, great, that's an asset. But if you don't license it, it's a liability. So it is an asset. Let's just move forward. But let's not do that again. It's not necessary, you know. Um, but, you know, at the same time, spending all that money lights a fire under your butt to take action. Right. So it's not all bad having spent a bunch of money on a patent. Um, and, and you know, when I when we teach our students and when I do these Q&A's, don't think everything is black and white. Well, Andrew said and sometimes people will say, well, you said on this and I'm like, yeah, but there's shades of gray there for your product. No, that doesn't make sense. So don't think that everything that I'm saying tonight is black and white for every situation or scenario. That comes with experience. You know, you start to get experience on what makes sense and what doesn't. So again, I'm going to ask you to uh, subscribe to our channel. If you're not already subscribed, I really appreciate that. That's how you could pay Steve and myself back for the full hour of Q&A that I did. Um, and you know, give us thumbs up on the videos that you like. Don't give us thumbs up on videos you don't like. And I'm gonna remind everybody to take care, keep inventing. And I will catch up with you next Monday. See you guys. Bye.